The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Well, I've been asking some folks to give some one-word descriptions of how they're feeling these days. And... Uh, how have you been feeling the last three weeks? And if you had to give one adjective, one word to describe what you're feeling, I've heard words like isolated, scary, uh, hemmed in, trapped, sad, trust. Well, as a result of all of this instability and change around us, some of us have been having some weird dreams. I had a very weird dream, but... We're dealing with a lot of fear, a lot of worry. And when this initially was going down, I remember one of the members of our church, Jessica Marcantonio, told us that Thanksgiving is often a backdoor remedy to worry. And it was just a great reminder from Philippians 4, 6, that we're to present our petitions with Thanksgiving to God and not to be anxious about anything. And so this psalm this morning is kind of a backdoor psalm of thanksgiving, but it's going to lead us front and center to Jesus. He's the cornerstone, the centerpiece, the one building block that you can build your life on. And this foundation holds in the midst of the storms of life, and even bigger, the storm we will all have to face, the storm of death. God has a sovereign story to save His people through His Son. He gives real deliverance from real distress and real freedom from real fears. And that's what we're going to see in this psalm. So keep in mind as I read this psalm, that this is psalm is was on the lips of the children and all the people in Jerusalem as they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118. And it's Jesus who sang this very song with his disciples after the Last Supper, before Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, where Judas is going to betray him with a kiss. It says they went out with a hymn. Well, the last hymn that would have been sung from the Hallel Psalm, sung at the Passover, would have been Psalm 118. So this is what Jesus was singing. This was on his lips. Hear God's word. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. 
The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recounts, recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that, Lord, this psalm would lead us afresh to thanksgiving. That we would know that you are good. And that your steadfast covenant love endures forever. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever been to the airport, smaller airport, kind of like the Gaithersburg Airport, and you watch the smaller planes take off and land. Well, some planes, they come in and they land, and then they're done. They come, they've reached their destination. But other planes, particularly student pilots, they will come, land, and they do a touch and go. They land and then they give it full power and they take off again. They come around and they get into the pattern. They go downwind, base, final, and then they land again and they do a touch and go and they continue to do these because they're logging their takeoff and landings. And so you wonder, well, what in the world does that have to do with Psalm 118? Well, psalms are like that. Some psalms, they come in and they land and they're done. They're not a messianic psalm. They're not quoted again in the New Testament. And their place, their setting and culture, it only lands once. However, some psalms, like Psalm 118, are a touch and go. Meaning it lands more than once, as we're going to see. And it's a little more challenging, so you need to put on your seatbelt as we have to go through a little bit of turbulence to get up to altitude here. To get a better understanding of how touch-and-go psalms land more than once, they mean something very real to the setting and culture. Like, for example, when David wrote a psalm where the people of God sang it in the temple in Solomon's day, it meant something to them. But we must keep in mind that there are two authors of Scripture. Kind of like how Jesus has two natures. He's fully God, yet he's also fully man. He's Emmanuel, he's God with us, God in the flesh. Well, the scriptures have a human author, and those who wrote these very psalms wrote them in very distressing and very real circumstances. And yet, as they're writing this human author, the Bible tells us in 2 Peter 1.21 that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we see there's a divine author of scripture. And the divine author in Psalms 
What happens is the human author has written this and it lands in that culture, yet the Holy Spirit has something to say again in the future. It will have a prophetic fulfillment in the future that the, that the human author may not have really known about when he wrote it. And that's what we see in Psalm 118. It's a personal testimony. It's a corporate psalm of thanksgiving. And, and the beginning of the psalm and the end of the psalm in the same way. It's got bookends. It's a thanksgiving psalm. It starts with give thanks to the Lord. It ends with give thanks to the Lord. And a couple times in between it talks about giving thanks. And yet the majority of the psalm, verses 5 to verse 21, is a personal testimony. And it switches to first person. But then it switches back again to third person. And so this is a touch-and-go psalm. It, it had a real significance for when it first landed, for whoever wrote it. And yet we see this as a messianic psalm that's quoted seven times in the New Testament. It's a significant chapter, is it not? It's quoted in Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, Acts 4, Romans 9, and 1 Peter 2. So six different writers of Scripture all come back to Psalm 118. So let's consider the first landing of the psalm. Psalms 113 to 118 are called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. What's that mean? That means they were praise psalms celebrating God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt and Pharaoh's army, and the great deliverance culminated with Moses leading Israel through the sea on dry ground. And they were hemmed in. They were stuck. They were trapped. And yet God parted the sea and they went through on dry ground. The Egyptian army followed behind and was crushed by the walls of water. Well, this is what the Passover feast was all about. In the last of the 10 plagues, you remember that the angel of the Lord passed over. And he passed over the Israelite homes that had killed their Passover lamb. And they had put the blood on the doorpost. And they were told by the Lord that when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague shall befall you. And the angel of the Lord would pass over. Yet in Egypt, all the firstborn sons were killed in one night. So you should think of the Passover and Passover feast psalms. Here Jesus has come into Jerusalem. It's the Passover feast. It's a week-long feast. And they would sing these psalms like we sing our Christmas carols during Advent season. During Christmas Advent season, we sing the big, big Christmas carols. And we know what the big six are. If I asked Steve over here, what are the big six? And I asked you, what are the big six? You'd say, well, hark the herald angels sing. There's the number one. And first Noel, angels we have heard on high, joy to the world, O come all you faithful, and of course, silent night. They were kind of the big six. Well, during the Passover feast, the people of God came to Jerusalem and they sang the big six. Do you know what the big six were? Psalm 113, Psalm 114, Psalm 115, Psalm 116, 117, and then the big one, the heart the herald angels sing, was Psalm 118. And so I want to encourage you this week to read these Hallel Psalms. Read them in one sitting and read them as one united voice. See them as see them with the continuity and the solidarity. It's less than 60 verses. 
And as you read them, I want you to see they're all connected. Borrowing from Professor Dick Belcher in his book, The, Mess the Messiah and the Psalms, he says this, Psalm 113 praises the Lord as the one who reverses difficult situations and lifts up the needy, the needy being Israel in bondage in Egypt. Psalm 114 tells the story of the Exodus as a manifestation of God's rule in the world. Psalm 115 contrasts the Lord with the nations and their gods. Psalm 116 thanks the Lord for deliverance, particularly deliverance from death. Psalm 117 calls on all the nations now to praise the Lord, and they're all anticipating Psalm 118, which is this corporate thanksgiving psalm. So let's consider Psalm 118 and its first landing. So first of all, it's a call to worship. The first four verses are very similar to Psalm 115, which also give the same three things. Let Israel say, let the house of Aaron say, and let those who fear the Lord say. Same idea. And each one is to give thanks because his hesed, that's the Hebrew word for uh, his mercy, his covenant faithfulness, he can't deny himself. He has bound himself to his goodness, to his people. And that is this term hesed, which is often called steadfast love. So we're to give thanks because God's steadfast love doesn't change. It endures forever. There's two big reasons why we can give thanks this morning, no matter what is happening outwardly or inwardly, what all is going on in the world. We can give thanks that the Lord is good and that his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is good in all of his attributes and all of his ways. God is good in creation. Each day after he created, what did he say when he was done? It was good. And when he was all done, he said, it's very good. God is very good in his providential care and upholding the universe by the word of his power. We're alive this morning because God is good. God was supremely good in sending his own son to save us from our sin and from death and from hell and from Satan himself. To come and save his people from our sin, to reconcile us when we were enemies. We call that reconciliation. To buy us back with his blood. To purchase us with his blood. We call that redemption. He redeemed us. To make us right before God by Jesus' perfect obedience being imputed or counted on our behalf. And him taking our sins and that being imputed to Jesus. We call that justification. So he reconciled us. He redeemed us. He justified us. And he propitiated. He took God's wrath upon himself. He took the punishment that we deserve. And so in that... God's wrath was propitiated or turned away from us because Jesus stood in our place. So God is good. His steadfast love endures forever, does it not? And so this psalm was used in different parts of it. This very phrase, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. It was used in some very significant places in the Bible. And this is helpful for us to think about Jesus. For example, when you start with a Star Wars movie, you don't start with Return of the Jedi, do you? You, you watch Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back before you get to Return of the Jedi. Jedi. Same with the Lord of the Rings. You don't start with Return of the King. You start with the Fellowship of the Ring. And so you don't start with Easter with, well, let's start with Palm Sunday. No, no, it goes all the way back. 
And all of these things have significance rooted in the Old Testament. And so what this very psalm was being used, let me just give you a couple of significant places where it is used in the Bible. When the Ark of the Covenant is being brought into Jerusalem, they're quoting, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. When Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, Psalm, this, this same refrain is used, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. When they rebuilt the temple in the days of Ezra, they said the same thing. And so Robert Godfrey, professor at Westminster Seminary, says, clearly these words of praise are using some of Israel's most solemn occasions, especially in relation to God's dwelling among them in his holy temple. The God who dwells with them is good and loving, the deliverer of his people. Well, where does Jesus go on Palm Sunday when he comes? He goes straight where? To the temple. And he's going to go to the temple because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And he's going to come and clean it. He's going to kick all the, the money changers out. He's going to clean up a mess because it had turned into a money-making factory instead of a house of prayer. And so Jesus on Palm Sunday is showing us the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. But back to the first landing of this song. We have here a real distress and a real deliverance from real fears and real freedom. Do you see that in verse 5? Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. The word for distress in Hebrew is a very interesting word. It means straits. You've heard someone say, you know, he's in dire straits or he was in straits. The idea here, it's very narrow. Literally, this would be from the straightness I called Yah or Yahweh, and Yahweh answered me in a broad place. That's where we get the idea of set free. So it's a contrast to something very narrow, being hemmed in and trapped, to something very broad and wide and free. That's the Hebrew idea here. From straightness to broadness is the idea of deliverance of this psalm. Well, the straightness was they were hemmed in at the Red Sea. They felt Obviously, they felt claustrophobic. They were stuck, just as the British troops were hemmed in by Hitler and the German armies in Dunkirk in 1940. But in this situation here in Israel, there are no ships coming. God has to do something different, even more miraculous. He's going to take them through in a broad place by taking them across the sea on dry ground. Well, verse 6 is directly quoted in Hebrews 13. So some of you may be familiar with this verse here where he says, I will not fear, the end of verse 6, I will not fear what can man do to me. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, and it's a great verse for us to think about, in particular in light of all that's happening around us. The writer of Hebrews just said, keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say confidently or boldly or with courage, we can say this very statement from Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And then the writer is saying <clears throat> that it is good. The word, I, the idea here, it's better to trust in the Lord. It's just the Hebrew word tov again. It's the word good. It's good. It's good. It is good to trust the Lord for us to take refuge in Him. 
And that's actually better than trusting in anything else. We're actually told in Jeremiah 17, is cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength. And so if you're leaning on Governor Hogan or President Trump or some other person that's going to prop you up and, and that's where your significance and that's where your foundation is going to be, the psalmist is saying here, no, it, it's better. It's good for us to trust in the Lord alone. And then in verses 10 to 12, we see that the, the writer is describing that he's completely surrounded. And it's the idea of being hemmed in again. Do you see that in verses 10 to 12? All nations are surrounding me. And this is describing Israel was Egypt is bearing down on them. <clears throat> and he says, literally, I cut them off three times. I cut them off. I cut them off. I cut them off. Literally, it's the word circumcise them. I circumcise them. I cut them off. Well, in verse 13, he's saying, I was literally thrust down and falling. And it's a wartime imagery of being thrust and leaning over and falling to your doom. So he's just about the end of him. And he's leaning down and he's falling, verse 13. But the Lord helped me. The Lord delivered him. And then verse 14 should... should Ring some bells. The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. That's a direct quote back to Exodus 15 too, which is right after they came out of the Red Sea. Moses wrote a song and they sang, the Lord is my strength and my song and he's become my salvation. Well, here they're singing it again. They're singing the songs in the tent and they're praising the right hand of God and we have this expression where we say might makes right. Well, it's interesting. This is literally saying that uh, just the opposite is that might makes or right makes might. The right hand is making might or making strength. The right hand of the Lord is doing valiantly. Right makes might. God is delivering his people. And literally, they're delivered from death. Verse 17 and 18, he's giving thanks that he, though he's been disciplined severely, he hasn't died. He hasn't been given over to death. So this is all a thanksgiving psalm here that's sung at the Passover. Now let's consider the second landing. This is a touch and go. Now think of Jesus. He's the warrior. He's the general like Moses. He's coming into town on Palm Sunday. And yet how's this general coming into town? Is he coming in on this incredible stallion, this incredible war horse? How's he coming into town? He's coming in on a donkey? Sounds like Shrek. He's coming in on the donkey. It's like, are you kidding me? He's coming in as roadkill. He's coming in vulnerable. You don't take a donkey into battle, but Jesus does. He goes into the temple to clean house. He's going to open the gates of righteousness. And that, that phrase that's used here in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness, would have been this imagery of leading the people of God in procession to the temple with the ark and, and saying, open now the gates of righteousness. Here I come, I'm coming in. And here's Jesus coming into town and he comes into the temple and he's open to me the gates of righteousness. And he comes to cleanse the temple and he's the one that the people are crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which we see is a direct quote from verse 26. 
And they're saying, save us, we pray, O Lord, verse 25. And that is the Hebrew word for Hosanna. And they say, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And that's what the people of God were crying out and the children were crying out for Hosanna to come and save them. Well, Jesus has come to town to save us. Similar to Moses, but different. Moses was used to save Israel from Egypt. The people were wanting to be saved from the Romans and this great oppressor. And so they're crying out, save us, save us, O God. And Jesus does come to save them, but from a much greater oppressor. It's from the bondage to sin and from Satan himself. We had a bigger oppressor and we needed a bigger savior. So why does Jesus then come weak then on a donkey? Something's going on here. Jesus is coming to lay down his life for us. Perhaps an illustration would be helpful. Let me get a little sip of water. Thank you, Kim. An illustration maybe to help explain this. That both, both my dad and my mother-in-law have both jumped in the water in a pool to save a child that was drowning. My dad did this. He was fully dressed. He jumped into the water to save a baby. And when he brought the child up out of the water, returned it to the parents, the parents said, my child can swim. <laughs> my baby can swim. My mother-in-law, however, saw a child truly in distress, and she jumped in the water. I think she had all of her clothes on, too, so she got all wet. And my mother-in-law's action was necessary and a blessing to the family and to this child. My dad's action was embarrassing and not needed. Most people think of Jesus' action of what he's come to do as either necessary or embarrassing. How do you see it this morning? You see, what are you doing? If you think that you can swim and stand before God on your own, you think this is unnecessary and you're a fool, Jesus, to jump in the water to try to save me when I don't need to be saved. But in reality, the scriptures make it clear we are drowning. We're drowning because of our sins, and we need to be rescued. And Jesus does that by laying down his life for us, and that was necessary and a blessing. John Stott's classic quote is helpful here from his book, The Cross of Christ. And he says, the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be, and God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. You see, that's what happened on the cross. And so what we see at the cross is just the opposite of what happened here. <clears throat> if you look again at this text of verse 11 and 12, and literally verse 12 <clears throat> is the imagery in the Septuagint is they surrounded me like bees in a honeycomb. Is there a lot of bees around a honeycomb? Well, these are the enemies, and Jesus is surrounded by all these enemies, and Jesus didn't cut them off. He didn't cut them off. He didn't cut them off. Whereas the three times it says they cut off that was Jesus. And the, and the sword thrust and the idea of falling, Jesus was actually pierced with a spear. 
And so he wins the victory by his sacrificial death. And so Jesus, unlike the other people in Psalm 118 that come into the temple and use this psalm as they come into the temple, Jesus actually comes upward because he's raised from the dead and he goes up to the everlasting ancient doors and says, open up. Open up, I'm coming in, and I'm taking all the people with me. Here am I and the children you've given me. And he comes back to the Father before God. In Psalm 24, open up, O ancient doors. He takes us into the real temple, of which this other temple on earth is just a copy and a shadow. But Jesus in his resurrection and then being raised into heaven takes us into the real courts of heaven. And so... We are told that this imagery of the stone the builders rejected is now the cornerstone. Jesus is rejected by men. He is crucified, and they're crying out, Release Barabbas! Release Barabbas! But about Jesus, they say, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! And Peter, in one of his first sermons in Acts, says this, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no under name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's Acts 4, 11 and 12. And the people of God respond in this community psalm where it turns from first person to third person is they say, this is the Lord's doing. Do you see that in verse 22, 23? We say, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so the idea here of marvelous is, is actually much, the word is actually much greater than that. It's the idea of stupendous, unbelievable, a miracle. Do you remember when Sarah laughed when she overheard the angel telling Abraham, that she's going to have a child when she's 90 years old. And she laughed in the tent. And the angel of the Lord said, she laughed. And she said, no, I didn't laugh. And he said, no, you did laugh. But the angel said to her, is anything too difficult or too hard for the Lord? It's the same word. Is anything too marvelous, too stupendous? The idea is that it's way beyond human ability, but not beyond God's ability. And that's what this imagery here, and it's the same imagery that's used in Exodus, the same word used in Exodus 15 at the crossing of the Red Sea on dry land. The people sing, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, doing the extraordinary, the impossible. Jesus does the impossible in just the opposite way that we would have envisioned. He comes in on a donkey for his steed, he comes in supremely confident and humble, not worried about appearances. And this general is leading us into battle, just as Moses is saying, the Lord's a warrior. The Lord is his name. Chariots, chariots and his armies. He's hurled into the sea, Exodus 15, 6. Well, Jesus comes in like that too. And this is what he says in John 12. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So how does Jesus do that as the warrior? Because he's the warrior of Exodus 15 who delivered his people at the Red Sea. But here he's delivering us in the second go around, this touch and go. And now he's coming and he's delivering his people. And we are told in Colossians that he's forgiven us all of our trespasses, our sins. How did he do it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. 
With all its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, he, in him. So Jesus, as the divine warrior, comes around again, accomplishing a salvation on a cross where he vanquished the prince of this world, death, and all the forces of evil that oppose the kingdom of God. His triumph was through suffering first, but then glory on the third day, which we'll obviously talk about next week. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, he's now the cornerstone, and he's the foundation for us, a firm foundation, so that every day we can now say, verse 24, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. There's an old hymn that's crying out for a new tune. So all of you creative types that are home with wanting to put a music to a tune, here is a hymn that needs a tune. And it's called either Jehovah Findeth None or I Hear the Accuser Roar. Love the lyrics of this. Let me read this to you. It's a, several verses, so listen carefully. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Sin, Satan, death, they press near to harass and appall. Let but my risen Lord appear and backward they go and fall. Before, behind, around, they set their fierce array to fight and force me from my ground along Emmanuel's way. I meet them face to face through Jesus's conquest blessed, marching the triumph of his grace right onward to my rest. There in his book I bear a more than conqueror's name, a soldier son and fellow heir who fought and overcame. His be the victor's name who fought our fight alone. Triumphant saints, no honors claim, their conquest was his own. By weakness and defeat, he won the meat and crown. Trod all our foes beneath his feet by being trodden down. He hell and hell laid low, made sin, he sin overthrew. Bowed to the grave, destroyed it so, and death by dying slew. Bless, bless the conqueror slain, slain is his victory. Who lived and died, who lives again. For thee his church, for thee. Do you get it? Do you get Psalm 118? Psalm 118 is Jesus. He is the Passover. He's the king. He's the salvation from the house of bondage. He's the sacrifice on the altar. He is the fulfillment and the ultimate touch and go and the landing of this psalm. And so the psalmist had asked the question earlier in the Psalms. In Psalm 11, it says, what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? Well, now we flip that around. We get to Psalm 118. And now we can say, what can the righteous do that the foundation is now permanent? It's the cornerstone. What do they do? They give thanks. They give thanks. And they find their rest. They went from something straight and narrow and feeling hemmed into the broad place, to the freedom. They're set free. On the flip side, what do the wicked do? Now that the foundation is permanent, the concrete is dry, so to speak. Well, the difference between the righteous and the wicked are just those who've called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We're all wicked in and of ourselves. But we're told in Psalm 2 that, that God sits in the heavens and he laughs because 
the people are trying to get rid of the Christ and get rid of the bonds. And he said, he's installed his king on Zion, his holy hill. It's happened. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, Jesus is saying, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son or pay homage to the son or submit to him. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Where is your foundation this morning? What is your cornerstone? Are you still trying to reach for this lure and, and got to take this one step into uncertain territory that you're going to go find that it's just sinking? And all these things that we put our trust in, whether it's the stock market or our jobs, the economy, Everything's in disarray right now. The one thing that we know that is sure and certain forever is the cornerstone. I hope and pray that he is your cornerstone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your humble entrance into this world, a humble entrance all the way to the cross. <clears throat> but we know that you're coming again in great glory and all will see you. Lord, we long for that day when all shall be made right, all made new. No more tears, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more sin. Lord, we ask for you to come quickly and that we'd be ready. Lord, for all who are here today who haven't put maybe their faith or their trust or haven't called out to you to save them from their sins, we ask that today would be the day of salvation. We ask that you'd work by the power of your spirit, doing it abundantly more than we could imagine or think. For we ask in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.